0: They should send their trade minister to have a trade negotiation. But it's a woman, so I don't think Trump would like her. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lind and Tara Golshan, and we are going to talk today about trade and trade war. Trade war is off, at least one of the trade wars.
1: We're, yeah, we're, we're now fighting like X minus one fronts in the trade war, <laughs> yes. I would say. There, there
0: are fewer fronts. Um, there was a, a dramatic moment a couple days ago. Uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, the president of the European Commission, was uh, I can explain what that is at some point. Was in town. He had a meeting with Donald Trump. And after stock markets closed, I think, or, or right near the end of the trading day, word leaped out that they had reached a deal and the trade war was off. And, and shares went briefly skyrocketing, and people were really excited uh, to hear that all problems had been resolved.
2: the great deal maker.
0: And then yes, great. the great deal maker. And then it was one of these things where, you know, it's the Trump administration. So there was no like Briefing call or a right. detailed document. Instead, like, they made a joint appearance, which was a little vague. They put out a statement. There were slightly contradictory statements from Europe. It took, like, 6, 12, 24, 36 hours to get, like, a really clear picture of what has happened here. And I would say
1: what's happened is nothing. Yeah, I, I do want to, like, point out just on the process of this that, like, this is something that you should be getting used to. Like, I know that we all expect the Trump administration to be at high chaos at all times, but it is likely that the kind of thing we saw last week with the Putin press conference that we saw now at the Juncker press conference where, like, the Trump administration is giving so little information to the domestic press that – the information is being pieced together from the other side of the participants is more likely to happen more often because we know that the White House has stopped putting out these, like, routine statements whenever Trump talks to foreign leaders, which is kind of the standard issue, like, the U.S. puts out its spin, the other side puts out their spin, and then we figure out what's going on. There's only going to be one side of that spin. We're going to be in the dark. So, like, If this particular pattern of international contacts are made and then we spend the next 12 to 24 hours figuring out what the hell happened behind closed doors, like that's what we're going to Well, and Especially
0: in this case where the the counterparty is a a nice democracy Mm -hmm. with a free press, the uh, European Union as such is typically covered in the English language by a variety of of different journalists. And so pretty quickly like the Brussels-based – press corps had like a good rundown there's a politico europe and they do their like equivalent of playbook and like they had a really good rundown are great of how there was nothing in here you know we obviously don't get that kind of insight from the russian media uh, but terry tell us what did the white house come out of this with
2: they basically announced this huge deal that they have agreed to discuss a deal Right. I think that's the best kind of summation of what, what happened about it. But I mean, so the idea— well, So what is that, had
0: Trump been threatening right, to you? like right, What, yeah, what yeah. was so, the crisis?
2: So Trump has been just attacking Europe for the past couple of weeks for being an unfair trading partner. He says that they have very high tariffs against us. Imports so that there's a huge deficit between Europe and the United States. And he was threatening raising a between 20 and 25 percent tariff on foreign car imports. So, and car
0: parts. And car parts, important. which
2: is important. And so this would be a big deal because unlike steel and aluminum, like this is a consumer product. So when people were upset about it in the United States, they were like, well, car prices are gonna go up between $800 and thousands of dollars. People are gonna really feel the effects of this. Even car companies that like these tariffs are generally created to protect, like American car companies weren't happy about this because how the car industry works is that it's very kind of integrated with other countries. So people are buying car parts from all over the world. It would complicate the process for even American car companies that this was supposedly supposed to protect. Um, and like, no one seemed to like this. Like, all the Republicans on Capitol Hill were upset about this. I was reading reports that people in the White House were upset about this, and Trump and Navarro seemed to be the only people gunning for this. And there were two schools of thought. It was one that Either Trump is using this threat of a foreign car tariff and car part tariff as kind of a threat, basically, to get Europeans to bow down to American demands, or he actually really wanted this. And we've, like, we like really couldn't tell going into the negotiations this week. And now, I also like still can't really tell, but it seems like at least... All of the backlash that he faced did have some kind of impact on how negotiations went up. Yeah, I mean the
0: closest to an explanation of the strategy that I got from a Trump sympathetic person was like, look, of course this is a bad idea. Because one question was like, why do you include car parts on this, right? So like with steel and aluminum tariffs, a lot of people think Trump made the wrong call. But the people who own steel and aluminum mills do not think that Trump made the wrong call. And he just did a press event at a U.S. steel mill that has been newly reopened in part because we're blocking imports. So you could think with cars, right, you might block imports of German cars cars and American car companies, would perhaps welcome that. Or, you know, maybe not because of retaliation, but, but I think they, they maybe would. But including the car parts made a much bigger deal, right? I mean, it was a much bigger hit to the European automotive industry, but it also turned it into something that no American business groups were excited about. And so, like, you wouldn't have any fun photo ops where people are like, you made the right call. But, you know, what? a Trump uh, sympathizer said to me, like, look— the european economy is much more dependent on this transatlantic car trade than we are so if it sort of blows up on both sides they lose more than we do so they're going to back down and make concessions and like this is trump being willing to like tear up the rule book and get some big wins but he didn't he didn't get any wins. I have to say to me, like one tell before there was any press reporting and like just tweets going along is a few years ago, I I got on like a weird junket to Brussels for American reporters to learn about how the European institutions work. And so like Jean-Claude Juncker does not have the legal authority to make trade concessions. Like that's not how this (laughs) works. It's very complicated. So the commission, which he heads, they're like the doers of EU governance, right? They run the bureaucracy, but they need to be granted a legal mandate from somebody, either the European Parliament or what they call the Council of Europe, which is like the different prime ministers meeting. And he didn't have that. He was just like sent to the White House to like talk things out with Trump, but he could not reduce European trade barriers, even if he wanted to. And so it turns out he didn't right i mean they said at the press event that europe had agreed to buy more american soybeans but obviously it's a free society like they can't make anybody buy american right. soybeans and like the
2: state like the us state can't mandate that either it's like a very weird right
0: but so what's happening is Right now, exports to China are almost 50% of American soy exports, and exports to Europe are like 15%. And the Chinese are really, really cutting down on their soy purchases because of a different trade war. So that's making American soybeans cheaper than they used to be because it's a huge hit. And so like it stands to reason that The Europeans, who don't have tariffs on American soybeans, are in fact going to buy some more because they're getting cheaper. So that's like one thing we won was he promised to do this thing that he'd already did. And they promised to build more liquid natural gas ports so that like gas can go on boats from America and be shipped to Europe. But that's something that they were also already doing. It's called the Juncker Plan, in fact. Uh, So it was like not a big concession. So that's that's what we got.
1: So there's also like totally rhetorically the kind of, you know, in theory Trump went into this meeting promising to escalate tariffs and came out of it saying that the goal between the US and EU is to work towards zero tariffs, which like is a directional change of a rhetorical one, but I think like kind of gets at the political reality here which is There is this dynamic developing in Donald Trump's relationships with foreign governments and institutions where, like, he decides that there's a crisis. He acts to respond to a crisis that may not exist. That response then triggers a series of consequences that actually put the economy or national security or whatever in a worse place than it was before – there's a meeting of him and another world leader, and then they come out and say the crisis has been resolved. Like, yeah, there is obviously a certain extent to which this is Donald Trump kind of getting himself out of problems that he was the only one responsible for or like declaring victory in in wars that never existed or that kind of thing. But I actually think it's worth thinking about this as Not the worst thing that could happen given a president who is really committed to both economic protectionism and the idea that like if he's not in the room when it happens, it didn't really happen like – If the upshot of this is that Donald Trump goes from believing that the European Commission is determined to ruin the American economy with these ruinous tariffs, after having met with Juncker, he is now deciding that, like, Europe is a good trade partner with America and trade negotiations are going in the right direction there. Like, that seems like it's closer to the reality that existed pre-Trump than the kind of weird, you know, Europe is engaging in a trade war with us narrative, and If that's what it takes for Donald Trump to believe that trade is good and trade wars are bad with any given trading partner, I'm not convinced that that's the end of the world.
2: But I mean, also to clarify, like all the tariffs that Trump has put into place are still in place. Like nothing has changed. The steel and aluminum
0: is still going.
2: And, And like also this goal of zero tariff, like that's the end game. It was also, I mean, it sounds very broad, but it was specifically for non auto industrial. Yeah. products, which is actually incredibly narrow. Like that leaves out agriculture, that leaves out cars, that leaves – yeah. So I mean – It leaves that, out the specific issue that Trump had picked Right, exactly. Right. So Fair like enough. he's actually left everything on the table. Well, and a question in this,
0: right? So like really early in the Trump administration, a, a Chamber of Commerce type person, um, you know, pitched to me what I think for a little while became the conventional wisdom, which was that like Donald Trump is going to sort of – Pull a fast one on the Rust Belt and announce that we're renegotiating NAFTA, make a big deal about it, do some tweets, and then settle for very minor changes. And that like this is going to be actually how Donald Trump, from a pro-business perspective, like lances the boil of protectionism, right? Like he's going to do tough talk. He's going to give people what they want, which is like standing up for America. But like actually he's going to settle for small, symbolic wins and it will be fine. That I think like was the conventional wisdom for a while. Then the conventional wisdom veered into the other direction that like no, we need to take him literally and like there really is like a 20% tax on imported aluminum right now uh, with like actual meaningful consequences. Uh, You know, we talked about this nail factory shutting down, uh, other things like that. So then it's like, okay, we take him literally. Now we have this EU thing and it's like back to a fake but it now feels less like Trump running a scam than Trump getting scammed. Yes. And that raises the question of what happens when Trump finds out that he's settled for nothing. Right That there was this like incredibly condescending uh Wall Street Journal article in which like Juncker's team like yeah. went through their strategy for like fooling Donald Trump and like how they had these note cards, and he was like. Well, if can I, I just need... say
2: if you're going to fool the president, you probably shouldn't go to the press and tell them how you fooled Well, the but, but, but they, but, but they
1: they're they're weren't just... saying they had fooled him. They weren't saying they lied to him. They'd said, "Look, we know because Donald Trump's administration leaks like a sieve what it takes to get Donald Trump to see things from your point of view, and we're using that." It, like, okay. and this is the thing they like. There's actually a pretty clear record of evidence that the. When Trump decides a foreign leader is on his side, he thinks that that is the victory. He like cares more about that well, than the I, substantive I victory. But, I mean, he's
0: just a difference with the EU, right? And with with the NAFTA partners from some of Trump's other deal making is that these are democracies, right? So his counterparties are politicians, elected officials in a democratic political context, and Trump is very unpopular, you know. And so it's one thing for the leaders of the UAE or even North Korea or China or Russia to like be like, ah, the great Donald Trump has created peace, Um, you know, if that's what it takes to get him to spin a deal. But Juncker is not like directly accountable to voters because Europe is weird. But, you know, he was the prime minister of Luxembourg for a million years. Like he's a politician and like a much better story for him back home, and for the somewhat tenuous politics of the European Union, like continuing to exist, is that like we pulled a fast one on Donald Trump. Okay, he's not saying it quite like that, but it's clear that they had a a a braggy tone.
1: Yeah, no, I in think they clearly thought the press that they back won, right. but they won by bringing Donald Trump around to a more reasonable point of view, which seems like a big win to all relevant European audiences, and which Trump can then, you know, kind of dismiss as, well, the point is we have a good relationship, we get along well, I trust them now.
0: But then the question is, is how does Trump feel? Trump is probably not downloading the weeds. But you know, if Trump sees a, a CNN segment on like, oh, actually, these concessions are meaningless. Like this win that Trump thought he got on soybeans doesn't actually amount to anything. And this promise to negotiate a zero tariffs deal is actually the same as the promise that they already had with Barack Obama. Like, does Trump begin to feel that he was betrayed?
1: I don't think we have a track record of Trump being disappointed by symbolic victories that turn out to be substantively empty. Like, I just, I can't, I, I just, don't have a mental model for that in my head of Trump actually caring about the substance of stuff. Well, over the
0: I mean, with 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 congressional Democrats on immigration, we had a couple rounds of this. I mean, the difference is that it seems like Trump's own team mostly did not favor Trump's. Well, approach yeah, so to that's this. the difference
2: is that you don't have these Republicans on Capitol Hill who are like diehard trade protectionists that are going to be like, "Hey, you lost out on yes, XX." whatever like with immigration for example when he agreed to a spending deal on the border wall that wasn't actually a border wall republicans who wanted a border wall were like hey that's not a border wall
1: right right like the key political question for trump like vis-a-vis the conservative movement right now is trump seems to believe that he can persuade his base to support anything because they're with him till the end right he's also extremely anxious to please them Like those two things are to a certain extent contradictory and like there are times when conservatives can tell him actually your base won't go there with you. They will abandon you if you do that and then he'll pull back. But like on this issue, it really does seem like Trump is all in on the idea that he can tell U.S. steel workers that like they're opening seven new plants, which is a total lie and like that will somehow be OK. But here's
0: the oddity of like Trump's base thinking, right? Because – One way of thinking about Trump's base, quote unquote, is that like Trump's base is the same people as Jim Jordan's base and Mark Meadows' base, which is to say like the hardcore base of the Republican Party. Another way to think about like the Trump voters, right, like the personal Trump vote is like these are the guys who live like mostly less religious, working class, white people, mostly living in the north rather than in the south, often working in factory towns, who one thing they really liked about Donald Trump was that Donald Trump at last was a Republican. Who got it on trade, right? Like these are people who might have voted for Barack Obama in 2008 when he promised to renegotiate NAFTA. These are the people who almost let John Kerry win the electoral college while losing the popular vote because he overperformed in Ohio because he ran all these ads about how outsourcing was terrible, right? And like Trump himself seems to no longer believe that Trump's populist economic message was an important part of Trump's political appeal. But like as a candidate, like Trump certainly did talk a lot about immigration and how he loves cops and he loves vets and stuff as a candidate. But he also talked a lot about trade. Like that was not a minor part of the campaign pitch. And it seems to me it's like – Michigan, right? was like that was part of the blue wall. But then Donald Trump won Michigan and like they make cars in Michigan. And the idea that Donald Trump was going to stand up for the American car industry, that seems like important to me and a weird thing to just kind of cast aside.
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like and Tara can probably shed more light on this than I can, but I feel like it does come back to the idea that Donald Trump doesn't actually, like, call up Trump voters and go, what do you think about things, right? Like, the people who are telling Donald Trump—he doesn't read the Times profiles either. (laughs) The people who are telling Donald Trump, oh, your base will love this, oh, your base won't love this, are Republicans and conservatives. And so without people there who are interested in telling Donald Trump, here is what your base wants or, you know, wants on trade, this is why you should be engaging in protectionist economic policy, that's not something he's going to continue— to believe is important. <sighs> All
0: right, let's take a break. I'm talking about this more because one of my problems here is that I kind of think Trump was right about the cars.
1: Ooh, I, I wanna, also want to talk about hear, the the the, this the soy bailout.
0: You feel like you're spending like a lot of money for kind of crappy stuff. At Everlane, that does not happen. You can upgrade your go-tos and your style by making Everlane's classics your new favorites. It's like great, simple, good quality stuff that you get a great deal on. They make what they call premium essentials using the finest material without traditional markups. They tell you their real costs so you know you're never overpaying. Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why. They are radically transparent about every step in the process, from materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. Because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than the traditional retailers, their clothes look better, they cost less, they last longer. I've got some great new stuff from Everlane lately. There's a couple cool t-shirts with like little pockets. Uh, they look really nice, good for the summer. Also a cap that I've been taking out uh, with my kid when I'm on the playground to get the sun on my face. Really good stuff. Of course, I've talked a million times about their Twill Weekender bag. Great bag if you like great things. These are timeless essentials. No frills. It's not like crazy stuff, but it's basic stuff that you will wear and use all the time. And it's high quality. And right now, you can check out our personalized collection at everlane.com slash weeds, plus you will get free shipping on your first order. That is everlane.com slash weeds, everlane.com slash weeds. If you like Vox Podcast, I think you're going to love Vox's television show on Netflix. It's called Explained. Each episode is a 15 minutes deep dive into one important topic. And this week, the topic is weed. So if you like the weeds, you are going to like weed, uh, the weed episode, I don't know if you like weed. Taste Dipper. That said, it's not just a great pun. It is a great episode of television. It is fascinating. You will learn how humans learn to engineer cannabis and what that means for the people who use it. You will learn why the marijuana confiscated today is three times as potent as it was in the mid-90s when I first indulged, and how all this fits in with the American War on Drugs, Uh, what's nonsense, what's not. It's like a lot of terms, THC, CBD, indica, sativa, ruderalis, terpenis, flavonoids. Like, what does that actually mean if you want to get information from someone knowledgeable instead of, like, a random drug dealer? Some fundamental misconceptions will be cleared up. It's really amazing. The whole show is great. The Cricket episode blew my mind. So check it out on Netflix. Search for Explained or for Vox or just go to Netflix.com. So here's the thing. Trump's idea of taxing imported European cars seemed to me to be a totally sound idea. And, like, it is a shame that he then mixed it up with the car parts idea, which doesn't make sense, and that he then abandoned it. Right? Because like here's my case. Like with, with trade, you know, you gotta think like it's downside for consumers, you know, prices get higher, blah, 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 but it can be good for producers, like it's good jobs, and, and it can be supply chain jobs, things like this. You think about what cars does the United States import from Europe, right? It's fancy ass cars, mm-hmm. right? So wonky economists who hate trade wars and they love free trade, they love free trade, they also think that a progressive consumption tax is like a good way to raise revenue normally. Explaining what that is, you know, you you can never explain it to voters. You can explain we're going to tax European car imports. And a tax on imported European cars is a progressive consumption tax, right? There's no poor people buying Mercedes, stuff like that. And we know from the SUVs and stuff like that, right, that the German companies can and in fact do – build their quote-unquote German cars in the United States. Uh, But they don't with the lighter vehicles because, you know, they don't want to. They're lazy. But if we put this tax on, like, luxury car prices will go up temporarily. It will create some jobs for the American car companies. And eventually, the European companies will establish more factories to build sports cars and sedans like they already do for the SUVs. And, like, it would be a, I think, like, bona fide win for – America. And like, he should have just done it.
2: Just ruined it with the car parts.
0: The car parts, man. And I didn't understand that either. At first, I was defending him and some car people yelled at me. And you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like why I shouldn't be president. Donald Trump also shouldn't be president is like, I heard about this. I had some hot takes on Twitter. Then some more informed people were like, oh, it's more complicated than you think. And then because I am legitimately not the president, I wasn't able to like convene like all the leaders of the industry and come up with exactly the right policy. But like is it's a sort of a small thing but it's like very much indicative I think of the problems of not having a president who knows what he's doing is that even when he was in the neighborhood of like what I think was a plausible idea, he like got it wrong and then he dropped it and like now he's pretending they're steel plants. I don't, I don't love it.
1: I mean the other thing here is the combination of a president who doesn't know what he's doing and who is determined to use executive power to the maximum to accomplish what he wants, right? Like we should probably just reiterate for the sake of this conversation that the president doesn't usually just like unilaterally set tariffs all over the place. Like Trump is using this national security oh, like, right. provision that – Has at best a tenuous relationship to the arguments that he's making in favor of like cars and car parts, certainly. And that generally has like been received weirdly by allies who don't particularly like hearing that trade with them weakens American national security. But President Iglesias would have hot takes about car imports, but wouldn't then say, I believe in this hot take so strongly that I'm going to like issue, you know, a national security proclamation that's going to allow us to. Like impute these tariffs. There's going to be respect for. Oh, normally there is a reason that the president doesn't get to unilaterally set policy because one man can't know everything.
0: Yeah, I would have. I would have. I guess I would have been hesitant to pretend there was a national security basis for this.
2: Well, I mean, national security isn't just defense. I mean, it's you can you can easily make the argument (laughs) that the the auto industry is an important and big part of the American economy.
0: Sure, you just need to be. I don't know. It's it's. This is a, a good discussion for another time. It's like the use of fake national security rationales in economic policymaking because it seems really bad. And I feel like the correct high-tone journalist thing to do is to, like, say it's bad. But also that's how FDR ended the Depression. So, you know, it's it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, OK. So what about, what about the soy bailout?
2: So this week— the administration announced. Or is
0: it just soy, or is it everything?
1: No, it's a, it's not just soy.
0: Awesome, it's,
2: but uh, it's a it's but, a farm. The it's a farm that bailout. You
1: described, you know, soy is being particularly hard hit. Sure, right. soy right.
0: soy is at the core.
2: It's a farm bailout. So this week, the administration announced that they will be pushing a $12 billion emergency aid package for farmers that have been adversely affected by tariffs. So they would do this three ways. One is through direct assistance. The second would be this government buyout program that at times the the government does when there are surpluses of products. So they essentially just buy a lot of goods and then they redistribute it to food banks and school lunch programs. And then the third would be to kind of really rev up these like trade promotion programs so that if China, for example, isn't buying a lot of our soy, then we should pitch our soy to other countries.
0: (laughs) Okay, so this is because of the trade war with China, basically.
2: Right. But I mean, there have been. So since Trump has put in the steel and aluminum tariffs, we've seen retaliatory tariffs from Canada, from Mexico, from China. Oh, yeah. Mexico uh, is
0: also a big soy user.
2: Right. And it's hit a lot of agriculture. And that's because agriculture generally has really low barriers to trade. Um, So it's like an easy place to hit with tariffs. Uh, And it's also countries are smart. They know the politics of the United States. They see that like farm country in rural America is a big Trump country area. And so if you hit them the hardest, it might hurt Trump the right.
1: most. To be totally clear, this is something that is explicitly being said is we are, you know, and I think we we discussed this in our, our last trade episode, like they're looking at states that went for Trump. It is entirely clear that like the equilibrium here for literally everyone is – restore trade barriers to the lower status quo. And the way that they're thinking about doing that is either making it harder for Trump to just start doing this stuff because his base will be the ones who will get hurt or getting Trump and Republicans out of office so that a more pro-trade administration could theoretically come in.
2: Yeah. And and so and we've seen obviously the administration has been very sensitive to this. They've sent Sonny Perdue around the country and he's been trying to assuage farmers concerns about this. I've talked to some farmers that are like increasingly uncertain about what it will happen for them. And this isn't just soy. This is soy, corn, pork, cheese. Like this is a lot of products that the U.S. sells.
0: Sells, right. And so soy has come up – happens to come up a lot because it's funny because people don't think of themselves as consuming a lot of soy. But like soy is, is the key building block of – like the industrial agriculture food system. And so, I, I mean, I did see, I, I know some of my followers were confused about this, but like, it's not that in Mexico, they're consuming huge quantities of tofu. It's that it's that meat is produced by animals who are mostly fed soy right. and soy byproducts. Uh, soy oil is like in lots of weird stuff. We also sell a lot of soy to China. But there's also like a dairy backlog. And there was a, an interesting, you know, sort of Political angle to this, right, is that Trump wanted to help Trump country people who were being hurt by retaliation. So he came up with this farm type bailout. But another sort of related sector that's been hit is seafood and seafood was like not covered by this plan. It happens to be that Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski represent the only two states with significant seafood industries, but they're also the only Republican senators who like really fight with Trump over substance. So like they're sad. And I think in like a weird way, you know, it's like the farmer's self-image seems to be that they want their exports to China. They don't really want this bailout.
2: Right. right. I mean, so, I mean, farmers in the United States get a lot of government help. Like, they, yeah, but I mean, they, they wouldn't, they
0: don't like to say they that. They wouldn't,
2: yeah, they wouldn't call it welfare. Like, they wouldn't <laughs> call it a bailout. Um, but they do, just because, like, the agricultural industry is so volatile. I mean, like, a new food trend comes in and, like, veganism becomes really popular that, like, obviously hurts the dairy and meat industry in the United States. And just, like, generally, Prices go up and down. And so the government has often kind of stepped in and given subsidies and helped out. So this is an additional measure for that. Yeah, if you ask farmers, they say, first of all, this is just a one-time fix. Like, if this trade war isn't short and it continues, like, this $12 billion isn't going to help us in years to come. Like, this is our lives. And second, like, they recognize that they want to trade. Like, that's their
1: industry. Like, they want to sell... Their products. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's worth talking about the seafood thing a little more, though, because it illustrates kind of the basic things that the Trump administration fails to understand that, like, one, you cannot predict the consequences of a trade war because you cannot tell the other guy, I am putting tariffs on this category of imports. You are only allowed to stick to this category in your retaliatory right. tariffs, like— Obviously, the possibilities are kind of endless. And two, various sectors of the economy interrelate in various ways. Like it's the same problem as the car part car import problem. You can't, without thinking hard about what is this going to affect downstream, say, oh, well, this particular sector is the only sector that needs to be helped right now. And like this is why all of the economists had a like no one could have predicted moment in midweek that When you start centrally planning the economy, generally, you end up having to deal with the fact that, you know, you're no longer having resources kind of distributed in a – invisible hand, everybody gets what they want kind of way. So once you've intervened once, there are going to be knock-on effects and you're going to have to continue to intervene. So like there is an open question about what happens to the seafood industry now. It's possible to imagine that like the current bailout is going to be sufficient for producers of corn and soy, but maybe not for producers of pork because like if they're dealing with higher corn and soy prices, they're probably going to continue to suffer even if corn and soy recover. So like It's worth thinking about the kind of argument of picking winners and losers that is being made here by the laissez-faire kind of center-left economists, especially because the defense of this from some Trump supporters is Donald Trump understands that sometimes hard choices have to be made and he's not going to leave anybody behind. John Carney, who writes at Breitbart, had a thread earlier this week. Yes, it's economic patriotism. really, really interesting because it was like, look— Everybody knows there are winners and losers from trade. The elites don't want to say that there are winners and losers from trade. They think that the the losers from trade, like, that just sucks to be them. The government shouldn't step in and help them. Donald Trump understands that when there are losers from something, America needs to step up and help. And, like, that sounds like a very interesting argument, one that is probably a little more ideologically sophisticated than Trump himself would normally make— It kind of does commit the U.S. to an endless cycle of tariff and bailout, tariff and bailout if you kind of take it to its logical conclusion. But I think it's worth grappling with as kind of an argument not just that this is – Donald Trump going, oops, this thing isn't working out as well as I intended, but actually part of a deliberate strategy to, like, get what he wants in the long term, but make sure in the short term there aren't negative consequences.
0: Yeah, although another question here speaks to, like, the— the longer-range vision versus like the the short-term dealing with the the politics, right? Because like one thing Peter Navarro has committed himself to intellectually is the view that to have a trade deficit is per se bad and that it will be better for the economy to not have a trade deficit. And so on that view, which Trump has frequently articulated in tweets, right, because the U.S. is in aggregate deficit— A race to the bottom on trade ultimately benefits the United States. So we have all the leverage in this kind of dynamic. And if we went to a world in which we import nothing from China and China imports nothing from us, that's a big net win for the United States. Even though it's true it would be bad for American farmers, in the aggregate it would be a big win. Now, most people don't think that's true. Right. But like arguing across that conceptual divide is sort of profound, right? And what Carney's doing there is he's adopting the view that zero trade would be good. So if zero trade is a goal worth aiming for, then the farmers have an adjustment problem, in which case a thirty billion dollar bailout is a perfectly reasonable solution right, to a temporary adjustment problem. And you could even tie that in with Trump's immigration views, right? Because like one of the most commonly heard things you will say about like why cutting off all low-skilled immigration would be a bad idea is it'll devastate the farm sector. Right. But if you have this view that, look, like America has turned itself into this kind of like third world peripheral country orbiting on the outskirts of a China-focused industrial system where like we're sending them corn and soybeans that we need immigrant laborers to even cost-effectively harvest. And in exchange, we're importing advanced industrial goods. So like that whole thing is bad, right? Like don't use all the land to grow crops, grow fewer crops, hire fewer people to field the crops. And like, make some fucking cars. I don't, like, subscribe to that worldview, but, like, I do think it's a little less crazy than some of the, like—or maybe it's crazier, uh, but it's not quite as foolish as some of the, like, dunking on Trump yeah, made it exactly. out to be. Like, like, the question really is, is, like, is he correct that, like, having a trading relationship is
1: bad? Well, and is he correct that there is an ultimate equilibrium that we're going to get to, Right.
0: right? Because, like, the counterpoint is that if you ever go to China, um, it's much more crowded than America. It's a smaller country. It has a lot more people, also really big mountains. Um, So it seems like America, which has a lot of space, like, should have a lot of farms, which we do, right? And that's, like, that's the comparative advantage, right? That, like, the country with all the open space should have big farms and we should sell people farm products.
1: So I I do want to talk, Tara, about, like, you mentioned earlier in the episode that congressional Republicans aren't coming out and saying that, like, you know, trade, Trump's trade war idea was awesome and he got played. Like, how is the farm bailout being received by people who are generally anti-bailout?
2: So so I've heard two things uh, from Republicans. I mean, one of the most striking things was when senators were, were much more open about the fact that this was a slippery slope. I mean, we heard a lot of, well, OK, if farms, then we'll- why not? Yeah, why not seafood? Like, why not energy? Like, where does this end? And then the second thing was, there is this kind of way that some Republicans who are really adamant about supporting Trump on everything kind of talk themselves into this, where it's like, all right, the tariffs are not what we would use to renegotiate trade deals. But this is way Trump thinks that we should go forward with this we are sure and that this will be short and that um, he will win this trade war quickly and that this is the only bailout that will have to happen and we will move forward when you ask them why do you think that this trade war will end quickly like what assurances is the Trump administration giving you obviously they can't give assurances on this like we don't know how the trade war will end we also don't know exactly what Trump wants like what a victory is. This speaks to the kind of the meeting that they had with Juncker this week. It was like, all right, well, they're declaring this kind of the end of one part of the trade war. Well, what was really won here? And that's like that's the kind of confusion and uncertainty that's been out there. I will say that the conservatives like the the Mark Meadows of the House that are usually quick to kind of find some spin to support Trump in all of his maybe not so conservative endeavors, were actually very like outspoken about being against the bailout. Oh, so wait, can,
0: can we explain just because, you know, this is the weeds. Like wh- where do you get $30 yes, billion? Thank, dollars? You. thank
2: you. This is what? my other oh, question. 12, it's $12 billion. $12 billion? Yes, $12 billion. So they have authority to pull it from the Treasury Departments. Basically, you don't need congressional approval. There are not a lot of details also, I would like to say, so on how they're going to do this. this
1: general treasury slush fund that, like, the White House, which has been complaining about people not paying for its border wall for over a year, has decided that this is the thing they're going to dip in for?
0: Well, there's a thing. It's not a general, right? So there's an old law, right? Back back when when FDR was president and the institutions of American government were less... uh, developed than they are now. Congress rapidly passed a bunch of laws granting various kinds of authority to the federal government to do various kinds of things. Some of that authority was rolled back in the intervening 80 years by litigation, political conflict, blah, blah, blah. But because, you know, Congress is lazy. There's not really like a spring cleaning exercise. And so as we saw with the 1962 Trade Act's national security provisions, if there's a presidential power that nobody uses, nobody ever really asks, like, do we want the president to have this power? So back in 1933, they established the Commodity Credit Corporation, and it can, quote, unquote, borrow money from the treasury. I I don't know why it is phrased this way because it's all one government. But the CCC can borrow money from the treasury and then use it to lend to programs to support crop prices. This was like a – a depression emergency measure, right? Like, I mean, you can get it, sort of. But there's usually, like, a lot of words surrounding these kinds of things, right? And there's no process, really, it doesn't seem like, uh, or or very clear limits. Um, who knows? Like, who would have standing to block something like this, <laughs> right? Because, like, what am I going to do, right? I'm going to say, oh, I don't grow soy, but have I been harmed? You know, so maybe not. And it's interesting, right? I mean this is the kind of thing where you have to believe that like if President Obama had done this, right, in uh, 2009, 10, which, you know, maybe he should have, right? Like there was a huge economic emergency of exactly the sort that was envisioned. If he just like pulled a $12 billion slush fund out of nowhere and handed it out to people in Iowa, uh, congressional republicans would have been really mad, right? Like not just like say something bad to Tara but like (laughs) probably try to repeal this law But, you know, now it's Trump, so it looks like we're going to get the usual complain and not do anything.
1: Right. And I I think that, unsurprisingly, hearing kind of this, like, latent power that is undeveloped because it hasn't been used, like, it sounds a lot, frankly, like the provision of the Immigration and Nationality Act that they used for the travel ban, right? That, like, gives this very broad and unspecified power to the president that assumes that the president will only use it at a certain level of national emergency and, like— if you have a president who is really determined to do things on trade and immigration in particular that previous presidents haven't done, you're likely to find a lot of these kind of doors that no one has tried to open for a while but that actually go somewhere really powerful. Like we think a lot about executive power in the context of national security because that's where Congress has explicitly ceded a lot of power. And so there's been this very developed line of thinking about it. But that's actually very different from the cases in which, in theory, Congress is supposed to be taking the lead on economic policy, on immigration policy, that kind of thing. But in practice, in cases where they've kind of built loopholes into the system and no one's looked at them because they've said, oh, well, Congress usually takes care of this, there are these latent powers that – a better functioning legislature might 10 years down the road or five years down the road go, now that Donald Trump is out of office, I think we can all agree that this was a bad idea and like roll some of this stuff back. But in the Congress we have now, even kind of setting aside the political dynamic of like Republicans defending Trump, it's unlikely that anyone's going to go, hey, maybe we should just admit that the president shouldn't have this power. I mean, it's, it's also been...
2: The generally well, Trump obviously breaks conventional wisdom. But the conventional wisdom is that even if the president does have these kind of trade authorities, presidents generally are more free trade oriented, just because right. they right. they run the whole country. That these these kinds of measures that Trump is taking has like backlash in different parts of the country that would affect him and so – and he has relationships with foreign leaders and this would be bad. So, I mean, I think there's been less concern to give these kind of authorities to presidents because generally they don't act this way.
0: This is where I think, you know, there's always talk about the economy, Trump's approval, his base, blah, 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 blah. This is where I think the fact that the overall economic conditions are basically fine – is what is generating the like Trump approval floor dynamic that like we can yell all day about like Russia and racism and immigration and it sort of like leaves Trump where he is, which is like modestly underwater. But there's clearly a large minority of the population that enjoys Donald Trump's symbolic politics even as other people don't. But like the question of like is this a brilliant businessman who knows what he's doing and is making great deals or is this a buffoon who has no idea what he's doing is like something we could like talk into the ground. But it's like if you walk around, you know, like stores are good. There's not like vacant apartments everywhere. You know, if you remember like 2009, 2010, like it was visibly a bad economy. Like there was no way that you could deny that. Here like – It's like incredible upheaval for lobstermen, but like on average, like things are going pretty well. And so if you're predisposed to think that like Trump must know what he's doing and there's a master plan behind the execution of this farm bailout and trade war with China and Juncker press conference, it's like I think understandably hard to convince someone that that's wrong.
1: Which is why I come back to what I was saying at the beginning of this episode and that like given these dynamics, a scenario in which Trump gets to go back to people and say, I've solved it. There won't be tariffs anymore because he, you know, totally cedes everything to Jean-Claude Juncker. Like, that seems like the best of the available options.
2: And something that conservatives will tell you is that, like, right now, it's easy for farmers to be concerned, but not fully break with Trump. Because They haven't had their harvest yet. They haven't – like these are kind of like future prices that they're nervous about. But there's time still, right? So they're still kind of sticking with him until something really bad happens with this idea that, yeah, maybe – like he does have control of the situation. He will figure this out.
0: Although, I mean, his – like his poll numbers in like Iowa in particular appear to have really kind of nosedived since the election. So, you know, I don't know. What – We'll have to see I guess we'll yeah, exactly. the harvest um we'll have to wait to well we'll have to wait to see like is there a big meeting with the Chinese right right because this European trade war that has been averted was mostly theoretical right um whereas the trade war with China is um quite real and uh you know I guess they should try to work it out yeah. Sorry for everyone. Okay, thanks a lot, Tara, for joining us. I want to remind everyone that The Weeds has been nominated for this year's People's Choice Podcast Awards. Uh, So if you love detailed, policy-oriented coverage of the soybean industry, uh, you need to vote for us for free by going to podcastawards.com or by tapping the link in the show notes. Voting ends on Tuesday, July 31st. So do not wait. Go to podcastawards.com right now to cast your vote. For the Weeds, thanks to our engineer Griffin Tanner, our producer Bridget Armstrong, and the Weeds shall return on Tuesday.